0: I was thinking as I was in the background how much I really enjoy the harmonica and uh, listening to Jay play, and I had told Amy that I wanted that at my funeral. I wanted a harmonica, but she informed me that that would clash with the marching band and the tambourines, (laughs) and uh, so I guess I don't get that. She was trying to encourage me this morning, and she said, you know, when you talk about Jesus, let your face shine like an angel. If you're going to talk about hell, your normal face will do. (laughs) So I appreciate a loving wife who gives you encouragement. it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing. Amen. For the past few weeks, uh, Pastor Barnes has been talking about essentially the spirit of the age, different philosophies, different worldviews that have come in and are crowding even into the church. We've talked about moral relativism, pragmatism, skepticism, and really what these wind up into, the prevailing worldview that you hear now, and you've probably all heard the term, is something called postmodernism. And it's a fancy word for something that really isn't that, that new. Um, it basically breaks down history and says that reality is kind of what you make it. You get to choose what it is. There's no grand, what's called a meta-narrative, an overarching story of, of mankind, of creation. But instead, the story is what you make it to be, and the meaning is put in by you, not by what actually happened, or what has actually happened. And that's not new. In Genesis 3, what did the serpent say to Eve, the very first words out of his mouth? Did God really say? Right? He twists God's word. Then a minute later, he says, you won't surely die. He begins to call into question what they'd been told. Michael Ramsden tells a story about meeting a professor in postmodern Spanish history. And he said, it was fascinating. So he asked him, he said, What is postmodern Spanish history? And the man says, Well, Michael, you must realize that there is no meaning. There's no truth between events. History is whatever you want it to be. Written history actually tells you more about the historian than it tells you about the events that actually took place. This is because facts do not interpret themselves. The human mind imposes its meaning onto the facts and gives them whatever meaning it chooses. And so Michael said to me, he goes, well, that's, that's incredible. He goes, is this an examined course at the university? They're British. They talk like that. Is this an examined course? And the professor's face fell. He said, well, it used to be. But the students just wrote whatever they wanted on the paper. <laughs> to which Michael said, well, it seems like they've learned very well what you've been teaching them. At the end of the day, it's a game that we're playing with ourselves. The man... This is not a a dumb man. This is a smart man. And as the words left his mouth, the irony didn't even hit him, that what he was teaching wasn't wasn't workable. It contradicted itself. Aldous Huxley said this. He said, I had motives. This is a great uh, admission. I think he was now a Christian when he wrote this, but he said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning, consequently assumed that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption." The philosopher who finds no meaning in this world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics or philosophy. He's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do, or why his friend should not seize political power and govern in any way that suits their interests. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, both political and sexual. So man is carrying on this battle of pretense, of pretend. The story is told of a man who needed a job, and he looked in the papers and he sees a job needed at the zoo. So he goes to the zoo, and to his dismay, he finds out that the only job they have is to play the part of a monkey. And that wasn't what he was hoping for, but he's a pretty muscular guy, pretty athletic. And he says, well, I can do that if that's all that's left. It, It seems they had a lot of people coming, a lot of children coming, and they were running short of monkeys. So they needed him to play the part of a monkey. So he arrived early one day, put on his monkey suit, and got it. And all he had to do was basically swing around from branch to branch and eat the bananas and fruit and nuts, whatever was thrown to him, and look like a monkey. That's pretty easy to do for a few hours. But after a while, after eating you know, 15 or 20 bananas and a bunch of fruit and swinging around, he began not to feel so well. And as he's swinging, kind of feeling nauseated, he loses his grip, and he slips and goes over the fence and lands in the cage next door, which happens to be the lion's den. And as he hits the ground, he knows he's in trouble, and he begins yelling out immediately, Help! 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 And the lion says, if you don't shut up, we'll both lose our jobs. <laughs> just when we cry out for help, just at that moment, we look around, we find out that the philosopher we're reaching to, the teacher, the, the Oprah or the Chopra, whoever it is, is playing the same game that we are, the same blindness. They well fit the description once given of a philosopher as a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. Okay? Without the Lord, there's blindness. So postmodern says there's no truth. It's not absolute. You can't know it. But what does Jesus say? He says, I am the truth. I am the absolute truth. And you can know me. If you seek me, you'll find. So what's at the root of all this, really? Really, I like to say all the time that we are nothing more. The difference between us and the kids and Kids Express is about one to two feet in height. Really? Isn't that true? As an adult, what's the best thing? I can go to bed whenever I want. Right? We make our own rules. My boys will tell you that they can't wait until they're able to decide when they go to bed. And I was the same way. And we, we take some of those, child, those childish things with us. Wanting to have things be our way. Having reality be our way is what postmodernism is. I want to pick and choose. They want to believe in certain truth. Believe me, the most postmodern relativistic philosopher you can find, if he's driving down 104 and there's a car coming on the crossing road, it matters to him to know that that guy is also a postmodern relativist who doesn't really think red lights mean you have to stop. He knows. It makes a difference. So what's at the root of this? It's human sin. It's sin. It's selfishness. It's wanting my way. So this morning we're going to look into Romans where Paul writes about the problem of sin. Here's what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, Have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. John Stott said, Many things in civilized society would not exist if it were not for human sin. A promise is not enough. We need a contract. Doors are not enough. We have to lock and bolt them. The payment of fares is not enough. We have to be issued tickets, which are punched, inspected, and collected. Law and order are not enough. We need police to enforce them. All these things and many others to which we have grown accustomed and now take for granted are due to our sin. We cannot trust each other. We need protection from one another. It is a sorry state of affairs. D.L. Moody was once told that the answer for humanity would be education. More education will work. And this is what he said. D.L. Moody was not a particularly well-educated man himself, but he said, if you take a man and he's stealing spikes and parts from the railroad track, And so you clean him up and you send him to school and you educate him. When he comes back, he'll steal the whole railroad. Okay? Isn't that true? There's an attitude of rebellion, of rejection. And and Paul goes through here in Romans 1, four steps in the fall that we're going to talk about. First is a story I want to tell you about Mary. Mary's a little girl, about five or six years old. And Mary's a beautiful, cute little girl. And her mom decides to have a bunch of people over relatives and influential friends and some some wealthy people and she really wants Mary to make a good impression so she tells Mary Mary when these people come I'm going to have you come out to the middle I'm going to have you sing a little song and when you sing this song try to look cute and beautiful and look them in the eye because these are important people in your life later on and you want to make a good impression so the day comes for the party and she brings Mary out to the middle of the room and says Mary did you want to do something for us and Mary says nope she says Mary you weren't going to sing a song for us nope you're not going to sing a song nope so the mother finds a place to pinch her and says, You sure you're not going to? Nope. So the mother's kind of exa- exasperated. She takes her up to the mother's room, puts her in the closet, and closes the door and says, Now you stay there until you change your mind. About half an hour later, the mother comes back. She opens the door and says, Have you changed your mind? Mary says, Nope. She goes, Well, what have you been doing this half hour? What have you been doing? She goes, Well, I've been having a great time. I've been spitting on your clothes, I've been spitting on your carpet i've been spitting in your shoes i've been spitting on your walls as a matter of fact when you came back i was just waiting for some more spit and the attitude to say no in the face of a sovereign god is what sin is that attitude of waiting for some more spit in order to rebel the first step in the fall is rejection men suppress the truth you know it doesn't say here that men misunderstood the truth It doesn't say that God didn't give enough. As a matter of fact, anyone who says, Bertrand Russell said this famously in a debate, that he would tell God if he was asked why he hadn't become a Christian, you didn't give me enough evidence. This passage, Paul makes no mistake and says, men are without excuse. It was plain. Men suppress the truth. Men suppress it. Even though God has made it plain, and they refuse to honor or give thanks to him. Okay, God had given man everything in the garden. And he still wasn't still wasn't enough. Man decided to be the god of God and be his own god. Unless um, we blame Adam and think it wasn't him, every single one of us have actualized that choice in our own lives. Malcolm Muggridge said that the, the most most argued about and yet most empirically validated doctrine in the Bible is the doctrine of original sin. The second step in the fall after rejection is separation, alienation. Men traded the glory of God for idols. Okay? Habakkuk says in chapter 2, he goes, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In Psalm 135, the writer said that those who worship these impotent idols become like them. And we have plenty of idols today, don't we? And those who worship them, Father, become like them. How are they like them? They also cannot teach. They also cannot speak. They also don't know the truth and don't know the way. Isaiah says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isn't that what we've done today? If you look out in the culture, haven't we switched what's good and bad? I could pick out three or four issues without even trying to think about it. How about premarital uh, cohabitation, living together? That's wise. You get a chance to check things out and make sure you're compatible, right? That's common wisdom. That's normal, okay? How about premarital sex? It's normal. You shouldn't discourage your kid. You're going to inhibit them. You're going to hurt them. We've made evil good and good evil. But in reality, nothing is as beautiful as the good. And nothing is as ugly as the evil, We've made good out to be antiquated and boring. And evil is enlightened. It's exciting. It's intriguing. It's more intelligent. But if someone said good and evil are like the positive and negative poles in electrical current, you transpose them and darkness falls. It doesn't work. First step, rejection. Second step, alienation. Not just from God, but from ourselves. Our very nature. Man doesn't know why he can't be satisfied, why he can't find satisfaction. The third step in the fall is domination the domination of sin. Three times in this passage he says God gave them up. He gave them up to impurity, to dishonorable passions, and to a debased mind. In other words, God stepped aside and let them have their way. Uh, Prince Philip one time was speaking to some rowdy college students and at one point he got frustrated. He said, just shut up and grow up. And then he told them this, you can abuse freedom, you can destroy freedom rather, as much by abusing it, as you can by forcibly taking it away. You can destroy freedom by abusing it as much as you can by taking it away. Ravi Zechariah said this He goes, The worst effect of sin is manifest not in war or pain or bodily defacement, but in the discrowned faculties, the unworthy loves, the low ideals, the brutalized and the enslaved spirit. The fact that man now is possessed of, of dominating loves and passions and desires that are unworthy of him, and he, he can't break free. He's in bondage. So we have rejection, separation, domination, and then finally condemnation. They've chosen death. And not only have they chosen it for themselves, but they encourage others in that choice. And bring as many as they can along with them. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Great Divorce, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Um, there's a story that, uh, again, Robbie Zacharias tells when he was in Cambodia in 1971. Uh, before he left the country, he wanted to go see a play. And so he took with him his interpreter, a young man who wasn't a Christian, to help interpret the play for him. Excuse me. And um, the play, the story basically went there was this peasant farmer, and he had the, the love of his life, his youth, and they got married. It's their wedding day. And they're celebrating, they're all happy. And the prince comes along with a number of his soldiers and he sees the girl and he's attracted to her. So he says something to his men and they go and push aside the peasant, grab the girl and ride off and take her. And so the peasant doesn't know what to do so he follows them to the, the palace and he comes in and he gets an audience with the king. And the king is there and the, and the prince and there's a priest there and they told the girl, if you say this man is your husband, we'll kill him. So the man says, king, that's my wife. Your son took my wife. And he says, that's not true. My son wouldn't do that. Let's bring her out and ask her. And they ask her, and she says, No, the, the prince is my, wife, my husband. I don't, I don't know this man. And the peasant's devastated, and the priest knows something is wrong. This man wouldn't come here and do this and risk his life if it wasn't true. So he says, Hang on, King, I, I, have, a, I have a solution. I have this, this liquid, this drink. And if both men drink it in ten minutes, they're going to tell the truth, whether they like it or not. And so they, they each drink the drink, and he, he says, Now, since one of you is going to die in ten minutes, you may as well each have five minutes alone with the girl but you can't have any physical contact so they rig up something with this big barrel on rings with pole in between and they each take one end the girl and, and first the peasant and the peasant arranges it so all the weight is on him and they go to a private room and she says I'm so sorry I said that I, they're going to kill you if I don't I, I, I really love you I wish I could be with you there's nothing I can do I don't want you to die and he's distraught and they have their five minutes and that's over and they go back and now the prince comes and he takes his side of the barrel and puts all the weight on her he doesn't care about her. They go to the other room, and he says, if you say that he's your husband, we'll kill him. We'll kill you. They come back, and they, ten minutes have gone by, and both men realize nothing's happening. This didn't work at all. And then all of a sudden, the barrel bursts open, and out comes a little boy with paper and pencil. He's been writing the conversations. So he hands him to the priest. The priest goes, to, reads him and says to the king, King, your son's a liar. He's stolen this man's wife. This is really the peasant's wife. Of course, right there, everything is, you feel the justice. But then the king says, that's a lie. You're all lying. You're all in cahoots. He draws a sword. The prince draws a sword. They kill the priest. They kill the boy. They kill the man. The girl is so distraught, she pulls a knife and kills herself. Ravi says, I wish I'd left five minutes early. But as he's walking out, he says to this non-Christian young man he's been working with, he says, what was missing from that story? What do you think was missing? And the man thinks about her for a minute. He says, what was missing was a savior. Someone to take up the cause of the needy and the oppressed. In our story, that Savior is not missing. God provided a Savior to take up our cause. We were needy. We were oppressed. We were dominated by sin. We were separated from God. And Christ came. God provided a Savior, an offering. Someone to bear my guilt and your guilt and to satisfy God's just wrath at sin. And we're reconciled to him. But, but here's the battle. Here's the problem. Now we're Christians and we still battle with sin. Why is it so hard? We still feel the weight. We still feel the oppression of sin in our lives. We still feel the frustration with failure day in and day out. We all know that, that we, we get frustrated and that we feel it. Why does it seem like this power is still dominant in our lives? Uh, we know it is. There's a story of a boy who wanted a bicycle for his birthday really badly. And so he's praying. He gets down next to his bed and he prays and he says, Father, dear God, If you let me get this bicycle, if I get this bicycle, I will be good for one year. One year I will do nothing wrong. So he gets back in bed and he's sitting there and he's thinking, a year's a long time. So he gets down again and he prays and he says, okay, God, a year's a long time, but I can be good for a month. For one month I will do nothing wrong. I will be good. I'll obey everything. I'll be good. He gets up in bed and he's sitting there and he's thinking about his sister. And she really needs a good hair pulling now and then. And some other things. He's pretty sure that he can't go a month. So he gets back down and he says, Okay, God, a month's a long time, but I know that I can do a week. I know I can be good for a week without doing anything wrong. I'll be good for one week if you give me this bicycle. So he gets back in bed and he's thinking. And after a few minutes, he gets up out of bed. He goes to his closet, gets his shoes, gets his coat. He goes across the street. There's a Catholic church. And next to the altar, there's a statue of Mary. He takes the statue. He puts it under his coat. He protects it from the cold, brings it back home. Puts his coat in the closet, his shoes in the closet, puts the statue in the closet, closes the door, goes back and kneels at the side of his bed and says, Okay, Jesus, if you want to see your mother again. Okay? But this boy knows he can't be good. Right? He knew it. So he resorted to, you know, that's not going to work, by the way, (laughs) just in case anyone misses the point. Um, But Paul talks about this also in Romans 7. So just a few chapters later after he describes the problem of sin, in An Unregenerate Man, he talks about the redeemed man, and he's talking about himself. But he's, of course, talking about all of us. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. This is in Romans 7:15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So it sounds like Paul is describing, again, that domination that we talked about from Romans 1. What's the difference? Why are we still dominated, and is it the same way? Well, it's not. Let's look at a little chart, and uh, there's a lot of blanks here, so you get, if you're taking notes, get ready. And I'll try not to go too fast, but uh, I wish you luck with that one. Um, what is the difference between the unregenerate man and the redeemed man in Romans 7. First is attitude. The unregenerate man is defiant. He's rejected God. He's suppressed the truth. The redeemed man is compliant. He wants to do right, but he's frustrated because he can't. The desire of the unregenerate man is to do what he wants. The desire of the redeemed man is to do what is right. With respect to good, the unregenerate man rejects it. He redefines it. He calls it what it it isn't. But the redeemed man loves the good. The unregenerate man embraces and celebrates evil. He encourages others to participate in it. And the redeemed man hates it and wishes he could stop. The unregenerate man is completely ignorant of his enslavement, the fact that he's, he's being dominated by sin. He doesn't know what the problem is. He doesn't realize. He thinks he's free. He thinks he's autonomous. But he's not. He's a slave to his sin. The redeemed man recognizes and cries out for help, cries out to God for help. So we're never completely delivered from the effects of the fall in this life. That's not what happens in salvation. We are deemed righteous. We are positionally righteous okay, because of the blood of Christ. But we still bear the chains of our flesh. God, through His Holy Spirit, regenerates us, but now the bent of our heart is towards Him, not towards evil. We still fail, but when we fail, we know that is against what we want, against our desires, and not congruent with Him the way it is for the unregenerate man. God promises us not only that He won't let us be tempted beyond our ability, but He'll provide a way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10. He also stands ready to forgive and restore us when we fail, 1 John 1.9. Augustus Montague, Toplady. Anyone know who that is? Kind of an interesting name. You want to write that down and use it for children or grandchildren? They will curse you till the day you die. Um, but Augustus Toplady lived in England, in Surrey, England, and he was traveling one day in a, in a horrific thunderstorm, and he found shelter in the cleft of a rock. And later on, he wrote these words, who inspired him to write this, this song. Which, of course, you now all, you now all know who he is. But he wrote, "Rock of Ages, cleft for me." Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. Recognize that we're saved from the guilt of sin at salvation and from the power of sin through our sanctification as we walk with the Lord. There are two errors that we make as Christians when we try to battle sin in our own power and in our own strength. The first one is despair. We all go through this. Our persistent failures discourage us. We live in condemnation, denying ourselves the victory that Christ has won for us because we know we fail. We've, we've all felt this. Okay, it's difficult to get... You know, any of you who've taught or done any teaching know that Satan is very, very good at reminding of your faults when you have to say something to somebody else. We're about to witness to someone or share the gospel we're keenly aware of our shortcomings, aren't we? We remember them, and they, they weigh on us so much. Someone once wrote in a poem, Intense is the agony when the eye begins to see, when the ear begins to hear, when the pulse begins to pound, when the heart begins to throb, when the soul feels its flesh, and when the flesh feels its chains. We feel these chains, and they bother us, and they trouble us, and we fall into despair because we just don't think we're good enough. Okay, I know when I was a boy it was much more of a common thing in churches to have altar services, every service. And there were people I knew growing up that you saw at the altar every week. And they were constantly getting saved over and over and over again. They felt like they needed to because they'd failed. That's a misunderstanding of failure. We don't accept failure. We have a responsibility to battle it. But we understand it doesn't break our fellowship with Christ once we've been saved. The second mistake we made, and this is becoming more and more common in our day, Maybe this is the majority issue now is self-righteousness. We end up in a very postmodern way, denying our ongoing battle with sin. We convince ourselves we're better than others, or at least enough of them, and therefore we're worthy of the kingdom. Instead of dealing with our sin, we compare ourselves to the world and pronounce ourselves good enough. Now we should hate, we should hate sin as much as anybody else, but when we look at others as the standard, and we're we'll talk about this a little bit it's not the right standard. It's easy to find other people who aren't, who aren't so good, right? That's not difficult. Some of us have to look a little longer than others, granted. But it's not hard to find someone worse than you are, right? It isn't hard. Um, even, you may have to twist the facts a little, but it isn't difficult to find somebody. You know, we, we, you hear all the time moral outrage being expressed, and I, you hear this, and it's natural. People talk about a politician or an actor or some public figure, and they're shocked at how they're behaving. And it always strikes me as funny. Why are we surprised when pagans exercise their job description? Why would that surprise us? We don't have to like it. We feel for it. We wish it would stop. We don't, we don't approve of it. But why would we be surprised? What's more disheartening is when we see a Christian do that, when we do that ourselves. F.W. said at the end of a long, long quote, he says, We compound the sins we are inclined to by condemning those we have no mind to. We make the sins that we're inclined to even worse because on top of doing them, we condemn others for things that we just don't happen to have any temptation towards. Okay, Rabbi Zechariah said, Isn't it true that the drunkard will often boast of his charity? The immoral man is thankful that he's not a thief, and the profane swearer flatters himself that he never lies. And the mistake here is we compare ourselves to each other instead of the true standard, which is Christ. There were two brothers, and they were evil men. They were just cheats, they were bullies, they were fornicators, you name it, they did it in this town, and one of them died. So the other one went to the minister in the town and said, look, I need you to do my brother's funeral, but it's very important to me. I'll pay you $10,000 if during the funeral service you refer to him as a saint. The pastor thinks about it for a minute and says, call him a saint? He goes, call him a saint, and I'll pay you $10,000. He says, okay, I can do that. So the day comes for the funeral and the man's there and the pastor says, this man lying before you was a criminal. He was a liar. He was a cheat. He was a thief. He did every single conceivable evil act you can possibly think of, but compared to his brother here, he was a saint. <laughs> See, he's using the wrong standard, right? He's using the wrong standard. There was a man one time who had a clock making shop. He had a big, big main clock in the front window. and He noticed that every day a man came by and would stop and look at his watch and look at the clock and, and fiddle with his watch. And he notices for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so finally he went one day and intercepted him. He says, Hey, I noticed that every day you stop and you, you look at the clock. Well, what you know, what what are you doing? What's the reason? Man says, Well, I'm kind of embarrassed, but my job is I'm the timekeeper at the factory. And it's my job to blow the whistle at four o'clock and tell everyone the day's over. And my watch doesn't work that well, so every day I stop and I synchronize it with the big clock on your window. A clockmaker says, well, I've got something to tell you. This clock doesn't so, work so well, and every day I synchronize with a whistle at 4 o'clock. Okay? When we compare ourselves to each other, it's like shooting an arrow and then running over and drawing the bullseye around where the arrow lands. Okay? I'm good enough. We've all done it, right? We've, well, I would have said that was wrong before, but now I didn't understand the situation. Now it's okay. We run over and draw a circle around our arrow. Well, that's really not... There was a reason for that. We draw a circle around that arrow. And we draw a circle around the arrow, and we just kind of stand in front of the real bullseye that we never miss. We never hit, rather. We miss the mark of holiness that's set out in Scripture. First Peter uh, 1, 14 to 16, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy." See, we should never despise God's grace by living below our price. Let me explain what I mean. How many of you have a wedding ring? A lot of you do, right? What makes this valuable? I would take mine off, but that's, I'd have to cut my finger off at this point. <laughs> what makes it valuable? Gold is not a particularly useful metal. It has some uses, but you can't build a car out of it. You can't make a bridge out of it or a house. It's too soft for some applications, way too heavy for others. What makes it valuable? It's what someone's willing to pay for it. What did God pay for us? What did He pay for you? What did He pay for me? And then the real question is did He get His money's worth? If it were me and I'd bought me, I think I'd be at customer service trying to make a return. Right? Did He get His money's worth? Listen to the, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about cheap grace. He said, Cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, it's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. And the warning given to Cain in Genesis 4. I, several years ago when Ethan was very young, we were reading this in, in his Bible. And we, we talked about it quite a bit. And we still talk about it once in a while. Um, but it, it's, a, it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture now. But the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? This is before, after his sacrifice had been rejected. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. The image there is of an animal waiting to pounce. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must master it. The problem, of course, is how we can do that. When you look at these challenges, when you hear God saying, you must master it, Peter saying, be holy, be holy, as I am holy. We struggle because we're trying to be good and we just can't do it. But here's the key. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And that's the difference As we struggle trying to be better, trying to be good, trying to be good enough to meet some standard that we maybe even artificially set. It's never enough because the problem isn't that we're bad. The problem is we're dead before we're saved. And then Jesus came and he he made dead people live. And now, I wasn't a bad person who was going to try to be a good person. I was dead. And now I'm alive. And now I'm walking with him. In Romans 8.1, just a couple verses after this passage of reading, Paul answers the question for the Christian who's struggling. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And he goes on in chapter 8, and I encourage you to read it to explain especially in the first 10 or 15 verses about how you've now changed like we talked about and the bent of your will is now towards good and not towards evil see the battle is the lord's we're trying to be holy as we get ready to close in a few minutes we'll, we'll close with this but jehoshaphat in the old testament jehoshaphat was one of the kings of judah in the ninth century bc one of the better kings and he's told that an alliance of three nations is coming to attack him in jerusalem they're only about thirty miles away at Engedi. And they're vastly outnumbered. And he's he's afraid. The Bible tells us he's terrified. So he calls the people together, and there's an assembly in Jerusalem, and he stands up and he prays. And I'm not going to read the passage. You can read it homewards in 2 Chronicles 20. But there's three parts to this prayer, three main parts. Are you not? Did you not? And will you not? He says, Are you not the God in heaven? Are you? God is sovereign? He is the God in heaven. We know that. Did you not give us this inheritance? Didn't you give us this land that these people are now coming to take back? Didn't you give this to us? And we know that God has given us also a sure inheritance, a certain faith. And then finally, because of of who you are, because of what you've done, will you not deliver us now? Because one and two are true, because we know who God is, because we know what he's done, we can have faith that he will deliver us that he will work in us. Faith is not wishful thinking. It's not trying real hard and screwing yourself up to believe something that you know probably isn't really there. Faith is putting your trust in something that's worthy of trust. Okay? I don't have faith in a rickety chair that's 100 years old with two legs. That's good. But if I see a chair like this, I look at it, I have faith in this chair that if I sit on it it will hold me. Why? Because that chair deserves that faith. It deserves that because it's trustworthy. It can do that job. We trust in God because if Abraham, when he was going to sacrifice Isaac, Askinus wrote in his book, God in the Dark, he said Abraham didn't understand why, but he knew the God who knew why. And that was enough. As the worship team comes, I just want to... There's one last... Right after that prayer, there's a prophecy. A prophet stands up and he says, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And Israel went out to fight. He said, Go out, but you're not going to have to fight. They went out and war broke out between the three nations and they wiped themselves out and fled. There's one more story I just want to tell you. It's one of my favorite uh, stories, illustrations of God's sovereignty and God's, God's faithfulness. And if you've heard me tell this story before, I apologize, but only a little bit because I like it. Um, again, it comes from Rabbi Zacharias, but he talks about a young man that he worked with in Vietnam named Hien. Hien acted as an interpreter, worked with him, and was, had become a believer. And Hen was captured by the Vietnamese after everything fell in Vietnam. And he, um, he was put in a prison camp. And a prison camp in Vietnam was not a fun place. And so Hen continued to serve the Lord, but they wouldn't allow him to even read English. All he could read was they were brainwashing him, communist literature, everything written in French. And this went on day after day, and Hen prayed every single day. He prayed and he prayed, but they, the brainwashing was beginning to bother him. It was beginning to take effect And finally he said, God, I don't understand why you leave him here. Why don't you deliver me? And he goes, that's it. Tomorrow morning, I'm not going to pray. For the first time since I've been here, I'm not going to pray tomorrow morning. I've had it. I've had enough. I'm done. The next morning he got up and he didn't pray. And he goes, and he's assigned that day to clean the commander's latrine. You can imagine a latrine in the jungle of Vietnam. is not a fun place. And he goes in to clean it. And he's doing it. And as he's emptying the waste paper basket, he sees a piece of paper. In the corner of his eye, he just sees an English word. And he looks around quickly, wipes it off as fast as he can, and puts it in his pocket, doesn't look at it. He gets back that night, and he knows all, all day it's burning in his mind, it's in his pocket, he can't wait, but he waits, he's careful. And he waits till everyone else is asleep, all the other prisoners. He takes out under his mosquito netting, takes out a flashlight, and opens up this piece of paper and sees in the corner Romans 8. And he reads scriptures like, What can separate us from the love of God? There is therefore now no condemnation. And he reads these scriptures And he breaks down And he says You wouldn't even let me Out of your sight For one day How faithful you are And he determines He's going to follow Christ He's not going to turn his back The next day He goes to the commander And says Can I clean the latrines Every day See what happened Was a missionary Had given the commander A new testament Many years ago And he was tearing out One page at a time And using it for toilet paper And he had put together Most of the book of Romans And was able to have that Eventually Hen was released He's making plans with about 50 others to escape Vietnam against the law to do that. And they've got a boat. They're ready to leave that night. In the morning, four soldiers come and knock at his door. They pin him against the wall and say, we know, we've heard, you're planning to leave. Tell us the truth. You are, aren't you? And he says, no, no, I'm not, I'm not. I I have no plans to leave. And they, they press him, but he denies it. So eventually they go on their way. And he says, there I go again, Lord, trying to do things in my strength, in my way. And he prayed a prayer he hoped he would never, get, it would never be answered. And he said, Lord, if they come back, if you bring those four men back, I'll tell them the truth and I'll trust you. And sure enough, just hours before they were supposed to leave that night, the four men came back and they put them against the wall again in a back room and they said, tell us the truth. We know you're planning to leave. Come on, confess, admit it. And he says, you're right, I am. Are you going to beat me? Are you going to kill me? Take me to jail? And they said, no, we want to go with you. These four men get in with a boat. And that night on the water, they hit a terrible storm. And they would have all drowned, he and says, except for the fact that there were four expert sailors now in the crew. These men were sailors. And they saved the whole 53 people, I think. Uh, I guess 57 with them. God is in control. God is sovereign. And God rules over postmodernism. He rules over sin in the world. And He rules over the sin in my heart. I'm in his hand. And I can trust him. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much today for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust in you, that we can rely on you. Most of all, Lord, we thank you that we stand forgiven. We thank you that you provide a way whenever temptation comes of escape, but that you always stand ready to forgive when we fail. Lord, help us to to combine, Lord, that effort to work, Lord, in your spirit to constantly pursue our sanctification in you. But at the same time, Lord, we pray that you would help us to come against frustration, Lord, and... And depression and anxiety that would keep us from living in a victorious life. We love you, Lord, and we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Let's all rise. Enthroned in the Father's love Destined to die Poured out for all mankind God's only Son Perfect and spotless One He never sinned Suffered as if All of-
0: If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord and you'd like to, there are people waiting to pray with you at the altars. If you do know the Lord but you'd like to pray, the altars are open for you as well. Bless you. Have a good good week. Go in the strength of God's grace. Amen.